0: And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're giving you a bonus episode this week. This will be episode number three this week because it's time sensitive. Uh, and we appreciate all of you for uh, for tolerating us jabbering on for an extra episode but uh, before we get started, uh, Mr. Frank Morin, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'm uh, Frank Morin. I'm a fantasy author. Uh, I've got uh, about 15, 16 novels out right now. I've been writing for a long time. Got some young adult epic fantasy and some uh, urban fantasy thrillers. And uh, my latest one is Bacon Master of the Apocalypse, a humorous epic fantasy that uh, I think we'll be talking about some tonight.
0: Absolutely. And so the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we uh, we met. So this is a little on secret, but Frank and I actually met on a secret assignment for the CIA. We were on a hunt for a few escaped E.T. and a talking teddy bear. Don't ask. It was weird, but what can you do? Anyway, things got out of hand, so we had to make them into a few movies just so we had plausible deniability. Uh, so officially this never happened. Just saying. You didn't hear it from us.
1: Yeah, we really can't talk about it.
0: <laughs> all right so before we let you uh, get too deep in this interview sir you have to answer the religion question are you ready sure star wars star trek or firefly Ooh. um
1: firefly go on um what else do you need to know
0: well so what What makes firefly special to you or, or your oh, favorite I love, I love
1: firefly i really wish they had gotten that first season right so they could do some more like everyone who's watched it i guess uh, for me the characters are awesome uh you know the character interplay and just uh you know the concept of them uh you know riding the black around the edges of space uh trying to stay free despite the you know the oppressive uh government trying to crack down and you know the characters are awesome mal is uh you know amazing trying to Come across as a tough guy, but you know he's got the the gooey center that uh, he just can't escape. Um, so yeah, for me that uh, that series just works uh, fantastically well. Great action, great humor, uh, really cool sci-fi.
0: Okay, that works. Right. Uh, and because we are polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Wheel of Time, or Coney and the Barbarian.
1: Uh, for me, it would be Wheel of Time. Uh, for me, I uh, that was one of the stories that really was kind of a huge uh, kind of work for me. I started uh, getting kind of really getting me deeper into epic fantasy. I'm a huge epic fantasy fan. I always have. And uh, uh, Eye of the World, you know, book one, of the, uh, the wheel of time is one of my all-time favorite books. I've reread that one many times and, uh, just a great, huge world. Uh, you know, totally fits exactly the kind of fantasy that I love. So when I first started writing fantasy, you know, that's the kind of fantasy I wrote. My first book was this enormous 300,000 word monstrosity that, uh, we'll never see the light of day. Um, <laughs> but I enjoyed writing it uh, for like four years. Um, is a great way to kind of start the effort uh, in the process of writing
0: but they, so, say, they um, say
1: don't start with your epic and there's a lot of reason for that but of course i did and it failed but it was a great launching point for me
0: so uh, are you familiar with author who writes sort of space fantasy glenn stewart who's that glenn stewart he writes space fantasy i don't think so i'm terrible with names so i may he know does- it,
1: but i've just forgotten it <laughs>
0: so he wrote a series when he was like 19 mm-hmm. and it was the same thing. And he wanted, he thought it would have them bones to be worth trying to save. So I ended up getting an author. I, I, whose work I love Terry Mixon and they together, they co-wrote it and took the one story. And basically I think they wrote it into five novels, the idea. So awesome. And uh, one of the things so they awesome. said, talking about that, when you go to edit it, it's almost like having a third author, him now, him at 19 and then the co-writer, because so much changes in your like oh, sure. worldview, your writing style, your yeah. voice. So, While it might not be ready for primetime now, that doesn't mean the idea doesn't have merit and couldn't be saved.
1: Absolutely. And actually, that's a good point, because I wrote that that book. And of course, it failed because I was, you know, I was a new writer and indie publishing wasn't a thing, thankfully, because I would have tried to release it and it would have flopped. But I ended up getting to the point where I understood the problems with it, burned it, you know, had a little ceremony in the backyard and uh, rewrote it. It was only a 200,000 word (laughs) epic fantasy and uh actually had that one several years kind of running the running around from one uh one major publisher to another who all ended up saying we love this book but we're not going to buy it Um, and i'm actually planning to uh, release that one um this year i've got the first two books in that series done i just haven't ever done anything with them but uh i'm trying to get more into royal road it's not a uh it's not a lit RPG, which I know is kind of the biggest thing on Royal Road, but they have a bunch of fantasy, too. And I think it might fit that audience. So I'm going to start putting some chapters out there and, and see what people think and uh, see what we can do with that, because that's a story that is hugely epic and close to my heart. So I'm hoping we can start, uh, you know, finding some interest this year later with it.
0: So we'll see how so- it goes. Absolutely. So uh, we here at the Blasters and Blades love both the scientific and the fantastical. But what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy?
1: Oh, I read everything. You know, I was a huge reader as a teen and, you know, started getting into writing um, and then kind of set that aside. So I get into uh, my career as a computer programmer, which uh, I still do computer consulting on the side. And uh, so I love the sci-fi. I love the science. uh, I love the fantasy. I've probably done more fantasy. I have just kind of gravitated to that, but uh, I love a good sci-fi novel as well. Um, just trying to think of what okay. it was. It's hard. It's hard to pin down a favorite. <laughs> um, That's fair. That's years, fair. You can't pick your
0: favorite children.
1: Yeah, in the last few years, I've been focusing on fantasy almost exclusively, although I have several several friends who write sci-fi, military sci-fi. Uh, so I like to read their stuff just to kind of keep up with it. But I've been writing, you know, epic fantasy, epic young adult fantasy, historical fantasy, thrillers, and now, you know, humorous fantasy. So uh, that's kind of been my, my major focus in the last, you know, 10 years. But uh, I got to get around to writing a, a good you know, action-packed military sci-fi or something. That would be a blast.
0: Pun intended. So what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it because, you know, there are the games, the movies, the TV shows, the books.
1: Yeah, for me, it was books. You know, growing up, uh, my family didn't have a lot of access to a lot of TV and stuff. Um, We kind of lived out in the woods in Maine, and reception was terrible. So uh, for a while, we had, like, one channel, one TV channel it was like, you know, the the public television, in uh, a bunch of these, yeah. uh, and that's all we had, you know, for, for like several years. Um, so my uh, my access to some of those other things was pretty severely limited as a kid. But uh, we had books; we had a lot of books, so I uh, I dove into reading. Um, you know, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, uh, were huge for me, um, and uh, Shannara. Uh, you know, those were big ones. The source yes. in the sequels; those were big. Um, and uh, David Eddings, uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, the Bulgarian. Uh, Malort, was the a Bulgarian. Sawyer, yeah. 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 Uh, those are some of my all-time favorites. Love those. Books. I love those. And uh, Raymond Minif- E. He wrote some
0: later in that. He wrote some of those later with his wife, didn't he?
1: Yeah, yeah. She. Uh, well, he finally admitted uh, near the end of the series that she had been working with him for years on those, and. You know, helping them with the characters and the dialogue. Okay. and just love those books. Those were those were kind of major influences to my my writing and my my reading. Um, yeah. Then the, the magician series with Raymond Feist, those were those were big. And uh, of course, then as uh, the Wheel of Time, you know, got big. I read uh, I read a bunch of those, and and that was huge. That was awesome. So those played a big part of it. And then my friends and i of course we were we got into dnd and stuff but we had kind of our our twisted version of it um we pretty much played with just one dice and a lot of imagination so it was uh it was a good time we spent a lot of hours doing that and that kind of helped yeah own my storytelling skills and you know kind of uh, help foster my my love of writing and story and exploring worlds and characters and um all of that kind of together really helped push uh push me on the road to wanting to get into this stuff and uh so it's been great
0: so what is it about the genre writ large of speculative fiction that that you know pulls you in so much that mm. that you've essentially made it your life's work not just sure. with the writing but as a fan and you know what Absolutely. is it you love
1: well, that's a great question. Um, for me, you know, I love the scope. You know, I love epic fantasy, exploring new worlds. Um, either as fantasy or, you know, sci-fi does that too. You know, Star Wars and Star Trek and um, Firefly, you know, they get to different planets and different worlds and fantasy does the same thing. You know, and I really enjoy that. And the, just the concept of, you know, magic and magical creatures and, uh, um, you know, different societies and that struggle of good versus evil and, you know, at heart, I'm an optimist, so I write these huge epic stories. But spoiler alert: in the end, generally my good guys are going to win. So if if you like like dark, twisted fantasy, you're probably not going to get that from me. I put in a lot of humor. Um, my characters get beat up pretty bad, but eventually they're going to find a way because you know that's what I love: um, seeing you know the good guys grow and develop and you know defeat their inner demons so they can they can deal with their life's troubles. Um, I think with fiction, we can explore some uh, some really intense topics. You know, we can go into some stuff that's pretty deep and difficult. Uh, that sometimes is hard to talk about in real life without people getting all offended and get their defenses up. But in fiction, we can talk about it. We can explore it, and uh, you know, come up with some ideas and some solutions. And uh, you know, it's a it's an emotional roller coaster. We can escape from reality, go through some difficulties, and eventually you know, get to a happy place, which, uh, you know, I think can help uh, deal with uh, the things in life that are not always going to end in such a nice way. But those are a few things that kind of keep me motivated and interested and, you know, endlessly fascinated with, you know, the worlds of fantasy and storytelling and uh, what we can do with our imagination.
0: Okay. So how did your love of speculative fiction transition from you being a fan, a reader, a consumer into you deciding to write stories in
1: that space? Mm, That's a good question. And for me, you know, it was a process probably like everybody. Um, As a teen, I was, I was a huge reader. Uh, I get in trouble with my teachers regularly (laughs) because I'd be hiding, you know, my book under my desk or I'd have my textbook open with my book inside kind of classic attempts that, uh, usually failed. And, uh, so I kept getting in trouble with that, but I loved, you know, I love living in those fantasy worlds and stuff. And, uh, as we got, you know, like I said, we got into D and D some, so I got started getting used to creating my own ideas and my own stories. And, uh, I'm one of the oldest of 11 uh, siblings in my family. So, uh, I would often, uh, tell stories, uh, to my younger siblings, you know, being a storyteller is one of the things I do. And I still still tell stories to my kids uh, as well, and I really enjoy that. Uh, So that's one of the ways that got me going. And, of course, I started writing some short fiction uh, and some story ideas in high school and came up with some initial ideas for, uh, you know, my first novels that, uh, you know, I started writing longhand, you know, in notebooks. And unfortunately, those were lost uh, after I graduated, but I really enjoyed the process of starting to explore that story. Um, In college, I got distracted by computers, like I said, and kind of forgot about writing for a long time until I rediscovered the, uh, uh, kind of the need, the burning need to write and uh, kind of my passion for it when my kids were young and uh, haven't been able to stop, you know, haven't been looking back since.
0: Okay. Um, So many authors will let their own real life ex- stories influence the way they will let their own real life experiences influence the way they tell stories. So was mm-hmm. there anything you think like formidable moment that sort of was that aha moment that you think shapes you as, as a storyteller? Was it telling the, the stories to your little siblings?
1: Yeah, that helped. And then uh, by the time I started, you know, telling stories again as an adult, I had gotten really into storytelling to my kids. Uh, we lived in Vermont uh, at the time, and we lived out in the country, so it was 30 or 40 minutes to pretty much anywhere. And my, we'd get in the car, and my kids would want stories. And we very quickly got beyond kind of the basic story ideas. They'd be like, Dad, tell us a story. And my son especially was like eight years old at the time. We'd get in the car, and he'd be like, all right, Dad, we got 30 minutes, uh, a warrior, an elf, and a necromancer. Go. And so we just come up with a story on the fly um, that we had 30 minutes to tell. And that was really fun because it kind of helped, you know, hone those uh, storytelling uh, instincts, I guess. And it's really cool when you're telling kids stories, you get that immediate feedback. You know, if they laugh at your joke, you know, you're on the right track. You know, if they're all engaged, things are good. If they look at you like, Dad, What? Um, you know, you can change, you can change tracks. So they look at you like, dad, that story was terrible. Um, you know, so you, you start learning what works and what doesn't and, and figuring out that audience. Um, and with my kids, uh, how I got going, uh, you know, after writing that, that huge epic that I had to put aside for a while, I told my kids who were pretty young, I said, Hey, let's come up with a really cool idea for magic. And then, we can create stories using that magic. And they came back to me, uh, my oldest daughter and son were like 11 and nine. And they said, okay, dad, let's do rocks, just plain old rocks. And I said, okay, that's cool, let's do rocks. So tell me about rocks. And they went and they did like this huge term paper. It was like 20 pages of notes on rocks, um, you know, the different types of rocks and everything. And I was like, cool, we can work with this. So we came up with a magic system. Uh, we're all huge friends of Brandon Sanderson. So they're like, dad, let's make a magic system, you know, that's really specific, like one of his. So we designed it like that. And we started telling the story of George the Petrolist uh, for like a year and exploring that world together. And then eventually uh, I, I was like, I need to write this stuff down. And of course, now the main character's name is Connor. Um, and the whole series is done with seven main titles and three prequels and a book of short stories. Uh, but some of those initial ideas are still in there and uh, you know that storytelling process uh, became a big part of my my writing process just exploring ideas and seeing what would work and um, and how to incorporate that into the plan
0: okay so let's transition a little bit away from the writing side and talk about things from the fan angle so have you gotten any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet
1: I haven't seen cosplay yet, unfortunately, but I have had some cool fan art. Um, I had one young guy uh, a couple of years ago uh, show up. He had written out some of the monsters, you know, from the series, and you know, presented that to me. And that was super cool. Um, I had another friend who's uh, who came with me to one of the Comic-Cons to be my like my booth assistant. He's in college and he's a really cool artist. And he decided to take the four main characters, several of the main characters in my my petrolist young adult fantasy series, and draw them out as uh, as if they were manga characters, and uh, so nice. you know, that weekend of Comic Con, he created these these really cool. I have to share them with you, these really cool drawings of uh, of the characters of my book as if they were manga, and uh, it was just cool to see his interpretation of the characters um, and kind of porting them over like that. I got a real kick out of that
0: so this is april this will air in april because we've got a kickstarter if you read the the um the episode title dear listener um so because of that you know if they join your newsletter this month is there any way you could include that art uh that was some of your characters turning the manga in your see april may newsletter see i could do calendars
1: yeah absolutely <laughs> i've been sending out uh, newsletters a little more regularly of late just with you know kickstarter updates and stuff but uh, that's a really cool idea, and I can definitely do that. Um, I'll make a note right now. Um,
0: and I will link to the to how they can join your newsletter in the show notes, um, sure. and we'll go from there.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I'll include that. I think I might have a uh, last year or so when, when he did it, but I'd be happy to do it again because uh, it was really cool artwork, and uh, it was really fun to see that, see that happen.
0: Absolutely. So speaking of, of things in the fan side, has anybody asked for your autograph?
1: Oh, yeah. And that's super fun. Um, you know, of course, especially Comic Cons and stuff, when you are selling the books, or, or when you're selling in person, uh, it makes it great. Some people will buy books from my website. Uh, and when they do that, you know, I'll sign them and do a note if they ask for a note and send that off to them. Um, I was visiting one of the local schools once uh, in the town where I live. And uh, I've, I've done a lot of school visits. And one of my friends who was in the school brought one of his, uh, his friends over. And uh, she was like an eighth grader or something. She was holding one of my books. And she was totally fangirling over meeting me, which was super funny because it was one of my first books. So I was like, nobody knows me. But she loved the book. I was her favorite author. And she was like all shy. <laughs> she didn't want to come like, oh, I met this author. So cute. I got such a, such a kick out of that. And, uh, but there were tons of people around I was talking with like 20 people and she gave me her book and told me her name so I wrote a little note to her and and uh, I was super excited about that and then my my friend uh, from this from the school he forwarded me a message from her that she had posted on Facebook later that day and she was like I met my favorite author today and it was wonderful and even though he spelled my name wrong it was still great it was like sworn <laughs> oh, it's like oh, I don't know. um felt so bad, so bad.
0: Lesson learned when you sign autographs, <laughs> ask how they spell their name. <laughs> yes. So
1: now someone's like, My name is Matt. I'm like, so M-A-T-T. And they're like, Yeah, traditional spelling. I'm like, you have no idea. I am not gonna make that that mistake again. So oh yeah. Some things, some things you learn the hard way, I guess.
0: I was so excited. I told the story so the audience heard it a billion times, but like the first time I got my uh, someone asked for an autograph. I was so excited. I spelled my own damn name wrong because I couldn't remember the cursive. Because <laughs> I always wrote in print. Like, I never used cursive even when we were learning it in school because I'm so much faster just writing traditional print. Yeah. That, like, the only thing I write cursive was my name. But when you sign your le- legal, even though everyone calls me jr like you have to spell it out so just it was it was a whole thing i was laughing so hard i ended up having to buy my own book just so i could give him one spelled right
1: oh, so i probably brilliant. still
0: have the first one i signed floating around somewhere with the misspelled name what a ride right. um,
1: yeah i'm but, uh, i'm naturally left-handed but trying to sign books left-handed is a major pain oh yeah me. oh my gosh so when Do i tilt them like
0: list- at an angle
1: Yeah. So when I first started, I realized that very quickly. Like the first time I tried to sign a book, I was like, no way. So I ended up teaching myself to write with my right hand. And I I developed my author signature as a right-handed signature. So it's funny because sometimes when I'm I'm writing a note, I'll just switch hands. I'll write some one hand and I'll write in another hand. When I'm signing books, I'll do it with my right hand and then sign it. And for a while, I was just painfully slow because just like, you know, just every line I had to think about because I was so bad at writing with that hand. But it was such a pain with the left hand. And besides, my, my handwriting is so bad left hand and nobody could read it anyway. Um, so yeah. I, had to, I had to develop a whole new form of writing for myself so that I could sign books effectively. And, you know, now I think I write better right-handed than left because I do it more often.
0: The other thing is no one ever thinks about is how much pressure you put when you write, which, you know, if you're writing, you're scribbling your notes, whatever, not a big deal. When you're signing a book that costs, you know, they're not cheap. If you write too hard, you tear through the page and that becomes a bit of an issue. So yeah, it's it's all the things you never think about.
1: Right. And usually you're sitting there talking with them and you're trying to write and talk and um And then you want to sign with flair and and you got to get it right every time where they're like, well, that signature sucks. Um, and then you feel bad. (laughs) like you said, then you want to buy your own book and be like, let me, let me do that one again. Um, (laughs) yeah. So have have you ever spotted?
0: Yeah. Have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading your books?
1: Um, I have a few times locally, you know, in the area where I live, um, I I like to tease uh, my wife. I'm like, yeah, they don't let me out much (laughs) because, you know, I, I work from home as a consultant, uh, my computer stuff that I still do some, and I work from home as a writer. So I don't tend to just be out a ton in public unless I'm coming to conferences. Like right now I'm, I'm in a hotel because I'm at a writing conference. I'm at Northwest con in Seattle. Um, So yay, (laughs) I'm out of the house. So, you know, hopefully I'll see some people reading one of my books this weekend, especially if I sell a few. Um, So, yeah, that's still kind of a rare thing for me because I'm not out a ton. Um,
0: I think that's rare for most modern authors because so much of the book market has moved digital. Yeah. Um, That I almost think the only time we really get affirmative answers on that one is either someone who is heavily involved in the con circuit or Mm. they've been around for a little bit to before the ebooks revolutionized everything. Yeah. Because that's when you, you get the most stories, I think. And if they're reading on their phone or their tablet and you want to see them reading it, it's kind of like you have to invade their privacy. And people get real finicky when you lean over their shoulder. Well what you're reading. It's like, weird how get, that happens.
1: People get ticked when they take a like a magic mark or something or a Sharpie and start writing on their phone. You know, they they get all upset. They're like the screen, you know I can't read it. So, well you can so like, I've
0: talked to two Two different authors who wrote code so they could sign books into the um, the I guess the MOBI file or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they did some updates and now those none of those programs work. So you, for a brief period, you could sign an ebook. Someone had come I, up with a way to do it.
1: I do actually have signed eBooks. Um, you you have to buy them through my website, or you can buy them from me like at a convention. I have some code where you can download it. Um, but if you buy the ebook file from me, that file is different than the ones you buy online anywhere else because it has a signature page, just built right into the file like an image. Um, so when you start scrolling through, you'll see the the title page and everything, and then you'll see the signature page as if I had just signed it with a pen, you know, and then on into the book. So it's just like when you flip open a book, a paperback or something, you see that second page is signed. Um, I have ebooks like that, so some people will. I'll you know, see him at conventions and they're like, I want a signed book, but I only do ebooks. And that's okay. Buy the signed ebook. Totally fine. Cool. So
0: nice. So speaking of fans, so what's the funniest or weirdest interaction with uh, fans since you started writing?
1: That's a good question. Um, I have one fan, uh, one super fan in Germany, which is really fun because she'll give me updates sometimes. And, uh, you know, she's trying to spread the word for me out there in Germany. Uh, but she's read everything I've ever written. And that's just so awesome to, uh, you know, to chat with people like that. I chat with her on Messenger sometimes or through Facebook. And uh, and that's really cool. I had another woman start uh, emailing me every uh, typo she found in every book, uh, which is cool because okay. I like seeing that, you know, and then when I do my next update, I'll incorporate all those you know, into the files, so that hopefully no one else will have to do that. Um, but she would send it every book kind of telling me her journey through the book and every typo she found, every question she had, just very interactive reading process. And then she got done through the series and, uh, you know, sent me a nice note. And she was like, this was great, you know. Um, well, I think she gave the last book like four stars, even though it was like one of her favorite books. So the way people pick stars doesn't necessarily make sense. Uh, but I did have a great review this year. Uh, the last book in my Petrolist series, somebody posted and they said, you know, this series fulfilled every one of my fantasy book reading needs. It was like, boom, nailed it. Um, so once in a while, you get that, uh, which is super encouraging and um, helps you get through the people who, who write the review and they're like, this guy's a hack. It doesn't make any sense. Like, well, you can't please everybody.
0: No, you definitely cannot. Uh, and like, people don't always realize the purpose of the reviews. We even had a whole episode where we, we dove into the value of book reviews and the purpose yeah. of the reviews. Some of them, they, they seem to think they're talking directly to the author. And, and you know, when an author's starting out, that can be true. Yeah. Uh, you used to be able to yeah. respond to reviews on Amazon, but it became flaming wars in too many books. So they sort of nixed yeah. that. You could put helpful or not, and that's it when someone writes a review. And right. you can report it, obviously, if it's... Yeah meets whatever the the guideline is yeah but uh
1: they usually don't like to remove the trolls though unfortunately even though they're obvious really
0: yeah especially when you see reviews for books that are trashing it in the books in pre-order so there's no way they read it yet (laughs) i've seen that like this
1: book's been out for one hour and it's a thousand pages long and you're giving it a one star review all right yeah that's totally legit Um,
0: most of the time though people i think is Keep in mind, you're writing reviews for other readers, uh, mm-hmm. telling them either why you liked it or why you hated it. And sometimes one star reviews sell a book to me, like, oh, too much violence and cussing. Oh, you don't say. Let me see if I'm not buying that one. you know what I mean? Like <laughs> but you're just you're talking to other people like yourself, right? So
1: right anyway, I, I'm I've big on of the of
0: value of reviews.
1: A friend of mine is uh, Matt Dinneman. He writes The Dungeon Crawler Carl books, uh, lit RPG. They're fantastic. okay, I've heard of them. But he uh, he's gotten some really kind of wild one-star reviews from people. And uh, he's always like, you know, ka-ching, I'm going to just use this like in my next ad. <laughs> like one person was like, you know, this book is not fit for good company or, or something ridiculous like that. And he was like, I'm going to use that review everywhere. I'm going to get so much mileage <laughs> out of that, um, which is a great way to look at it.
0: I actually did that once and then Amazon put the kibosh on it because oh, no. uh, you're not supposed <laughs> oh, to be able to do that. But then in The Great Purge, when they when they, so many of the reviews disappears, that one disappeared too. But it was like, this is what happens when a 12-year-old with ADHD writes gun porn. And I'm like, dude, you couldn't have written me better ad copy.
1: That's awesome.
0: It was no sci-fi. So I'm That's like, I'm going to use that until Amazon was like, no, we, we don't do that here. Um, so... <laughs> All right, before we uh, we dive into the book and, and the commercial, can you tell us everything you've written, so sort of the Reader's Digest version of your body of works?
1: Sure. Um, the ones I have published right now are the Petrolith series, which is my young adult epic fantasy. Uh, that's a big epic adventure, you know, over seven main titles in the series. Starts with a book called Set in Stone. There's a lot of humor and a uh, really cool magic system based on rocks. I talked about that a little bit. Kind of a Brandon Sanderson-esque magic system with... Uh, Uh, kind of very rules-based, specific, um, almost scientific-type magic system. Uh, That one's got seven main titles, three prequels, and a book of short stories. It's totally done. Um, That's been my most popular work so far. Uh, I have The Face Takers, which is my urban fantasy thrillers. Uh, Those haven't been found as much, unfortunately, because when people find them, they really love them. And I had so much fun writing those books They're a a fast action story that starts in the near future and goes progressively back into history as these people are jumping in and out of memories of some people who have been living for thousands of years and fighting over important moments in time. So that one, if you like, a lot of action, a lot of guns, some cool monsters, a little bit of romance, kind of all mixed together and set to boiling. That's a great series, The Face Takers. Uh, And that series is down to four books. And then now... uh, Uh, The Bacon Master of of the Apocalypse, Um, my humorous epic fantasy is, uh, you know, I've got the Kickstarter running right now and uh, getting ready to release that one. And uh, I plan to have several books in that series, the first trilogy I'm working on finishing right now. And then I've got a few things I haven't released and, you know, a bunch of short stories that have been out there in various places. Um, But that's about it so far.
0: Okay. Well, all of that sounds fascinating, but before we dig into the book that brought us here, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. Um...
1: Do you like your science fiction with a little bit of naughty and a good helping of comedy? Then pick up your copy of Flux Runners by William Joseph Roberts and join the crew of the Betty in their adventure into the dark unknown. Flux Runners is available through Three Ravens Publishing on Amazon in ebook, paperback, hardback, and on Audible. Narrated by Brian Stansberry.
0: Wow, I really got to adjust the volume on that one. Uh, Sorry about that, people. But uh, it's an interesting book. We've had him on to talk about it. So you should check it out, people. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. But uh, let's not dally too much because, you know, time is money, as they say. Let's talk about Bacon Master of the Apocalypse. So where did you get the idea or the premise for this universe? Psychedelics, oh, Ouija board, <laughs> too much mountain air?
1: Oh, my gosh. it's uh, It was just kind of a process, really. I uh, With the Petrolis books... Uh, We had some characters that are that's kind of started as really kind of funny sidekick characters that had really cool character arcs uh, throughout. There's one character in particular who was all about food, um, and he's a very funny guy, and he's ended up being one of the uh, the all-time favorite characters for a lot of the fans. And so when I was uh, after I finished the series, I was thinking about what else to do next. In talking about it with family and friends and some uh, and you know uh, some other folks, we kept coming back to the fact that uh, you know some of the stuff I do really well uh, is humor and then stuff with food because uh, a lot of my characters end up being really all about the food. So then I was thinking about this one character's name is Hamish. He's so funny, but I was like, you know, why don't we take Hamish and just kind of push that to the limits and see how far we can get? So like, let's do a world. I think I was late one night. I was talking with my older son, who's now in his early twenties, great idea guy, and we we're talking about it. Came up with the idea of let's do something with food. Okay, how about food magic? So like, all right, we're gonna do food magic, culinary wizards. We started exploring it, um, and we're bacon fans, and uh, so we're like, okay, who isn't? So we're like, we got to have a bacon master. As soon as that came out, it was like boom. You know, the ideas have started firing like crazy, and. Uh, so we gotta have a bacon master and then what else? Okay, we got cheese wizards and we got muffin mages and we got vegetable shamans and milk mages and they just started all coming out. Um, and then we just figured out, okay, how do we put that into book form? Um, so th- this one definitely started with the idea of you know humorous food magic as the catalyst of everything we do. Um, and eventually uh, I settled on the main character. Uh, his name is Rasher Dilskin. And uh, he's a bacon master. He has the ability to channel the awesomeness of bacon for superhuman enhancements, um, but he faints at the sight of blood. So he's got a bit of a challenge there, and uh, he's trying to figure that out, and uh, <laughs> uh, figure out how to get his career going, and you know, win permission to marry his true love, who's a noble woman, um, without uh, you know fainting at the wrong moment because uh, he sees somebody bleeding. He's a paint battle trainer uh, in the legions uh who helped fight off the apocalypse so super fun that was kind of how we got started with that whole thing and just developing the world and uh when we were talking about different titles and stuff at first I was like okay I, I started my working title was almost heroes because with all these guys with really really cool uh, abilities but they all have kind of major problems so there's Rasher who's got the the, the amazing bacon powers but he, he faints at the sight of blood which is a big deal um there's a girl who ends up on his team uh, named kuchiza and she's a meat mage she can create these meats that uh, can produce superhuman enhancements for folks that are based on the animals that the meats come from Uh, but she's from a family that's got a lot of issues so she's only ever been allowed to work with chicken Uh, so she can produce all these chicken based enhancements that are really cool Um, But chicken isn't really something you consider as super epic warrior material, so she's got to figure that out. Um, We have a dwarven coffee wizard uh, who gets to shake so bad he can't work with metal. He can only work with origami uh, when he's trying to craft things. We have an epic knight who fights with a shovel, so we got a shovel knight on board. Uh, We've got a a spice wizard who is an overweight gastrointestinal expert. so all these guys aren't exactly hero material, but they end up uh, in this world. Uh, the apocalypse has been prophesied; uh, the, the empire is going to be destroyed by apocalypse. But the uh, the leadership of the empire didn't like that idea, so they fired the prophet, hired a PR firm to give him better prophecies, and they uh, they created a team of heroes known as the Reapers of the Apocalypse, who lead the legions to fight off the apocalypse when it comes in every generation and they've been successful for 11 generations but now the empire is being invaded by these hordes of magical monsters and the current reaper team are abruptly sidelined by uh, nefarious contract addendums that say you can no longer be heroes on penalty of the cream cheese clause so it's it's pretty intense Uh, and they need new heroes and what they end up getting is rasher dilskin and his team that nobody believes can really Uh, save breakfast let alone the empire um so in bacon master of the apocalypse you know all this starts getting set up and they have to figure out how to work together and uh you know solve a mystery and figure out how to rally the legion so they can go out to battle against the ravening hordes of monsters with their battle cuisine and uh you know save the day so it's it's actually very epic the first draft i started working on it um it started coming out so epic that we lost some of the kind of some of the humor in there so i had to dial it back and be like okay this is a different kind of story you know this is humorous fantasy not epic fantasy with some humor um so i had to go back and dial up the humor elements and uh, but it is very much an epic book and i think people are really really going to love it the magic system is hilarious um you know you go into battle and you've got you know muffin mages with burning muffins that they're throwing and uh, cheese wizards with acids and poisons. You got milk mages with healing whipped cream. And uh, <laughs> there's a great scene, there's a battle on a wall and they're, you know, they're trying to fight these monsters and stuff. And you get some vegetable shamans up there, you know, they're filling they're up some vegetables on the wall. They're like just a minute, it's almost ready, you know. And then they throw the vegetables over the wall and it creates this huge, you know, earth explosion and stuff. Um, but it's just a lot of inherent humor in there. And uh, I think it's going to be great. I think people are really going to love it.
0: So before we get too deep into it, I went ahead and threw your ad from your Kickstarter on the screen so people can see the art you commissioned. But um, what would the age range for this story be? It sounds like almost this is written for an any age range, but what what would you say?
1: Well, I'm writing it, you know, it's uh, it's technically adult humorous fantasy. Um I don't plan to write a lot of racy stuff that uh, um, would kind of limit the age range. So, uh, you know, there's some romance in there, there's battle in there, there's a lot of epic stuff, but there's a lot of humor. And uh, so you could have, you know, teens read it or adults read it. Um, If people are fans of Terry Pratchett or if they're fans of The Princess Bride, and if they like bacon, you know, some good food, they would love these books. Um, so I think that's really the target audience or the, the best audience are people who like, you know, things like Terry Pratchett and the Princess Bride um, all rolled into some awesome food fantasy, food humor, and uh, culinary wizards that uh, all have these, uh, these different powers. You know, we've got the gods of the Pantheon in this world that uh, empower their guilds of magic with different abilities and uh so yeah it's, uh, it's it's a good time
0: so what you're saying is they'll have fun storming the castle
1: absolutely it would take a miracle so now <laughs> the, they need the,
0: it <laughs> so uh now into the fun part uh can we take a moment is this what the cover is going to look like because yeah. there was another cover that looked like it was leather bound
1: yeah this is the standard cover um that all the standard editions will have and uh, the artist uh There's a fantastically talented guy from down in Argentina, uh, Luciano Flaitas, and he's written, he's done some covers for some other authors. Uh, He did the covers for uh, the Dungeon Crawler books uh, for Matt Dinneman. That's how I kind of became aware of him. So he did this amazing cover for me. Uh, The leather edition one uh, that I sent to you is the exclusive Kickstarter edition. Uh, As part of the Kickstarter, we're going to be creating this uh, really epic, uh leather hardcover that uh people won't be able to get anywhere else just through the Kickstarter. Um I'm very excited about it. Uh the the printer, I think I'm pushing them kind of to the limits <laughs> because there's uh you know they're doing the, the the foil stamping and the the embossing and the debossing and this is there's all kinds of stuff going on with this cover. Uh I'm very excited about it. And all uh, right uh, so well let so me go ahead, ahead.
0: since we're Go ahead since we mentioned it give me a second and i will go ahead and show this is the embossed leather cover which i think is amazing um
1: so it's funny because we developed that logo uh for the reapers of the apocalypse that uh uh, butcher knife there on the shield and i asked my artist i was like hey could you uh you know take this logo and incorporate it into this you know as well as the the title of the book incorporate into this you know, kind of greenish um, leather hardcover blank that the printer sent me kind of as a base. And he came back with this and he was like, is this what you mean? (laughs) I was like, absolutely, dude. That's amazing. So I sent that back to the to the printer. And I was like, yeah, this is what I plan to do with it. And they're like, whoa. Um, yeah, well, let me get back to you for a bit. And they came back to me. And they said, yeah, we, we kind of looked it over and talked it over with our art department and everything. And they said, yes, we can do this. So um, I hope they can pull it off because it's going to be very epic.
0: Absolutely. So speaking of uh, uh, reward tiers and only from Kickstarters, so normally we talk about books. They're just directly for sale from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy your books. Um, but you're doing it through Kickstarter, which we haven't had as many authors come through here, although it happens, uh, Kickstarters are, as you know, dear listener, they're time sensitive. So sometimes scheduling those interviews is just hit or miss, Mm -hmm. but, uh, what made you decide to go with Kickstarter and what reward tiers did you pick? Because obviously they're getting the book, but generally there's, and more.
1: Sure. So
0: what can you tell us about your Kickstarter? And we'll link to that in the show notes dear listener.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I could have just, you know, thrown the book out there. People love the the concept, and I think it will be a very popular book. But uh, I've seen some people do some fun things with Kickstarter. And I thought, you know, that would be a blast. And the, I really want to make this leather hardcover edition. I think that would be super cool, especially with this book. Uh, and the only way I can really do that effectively is through the Kickstarter because, you know, these are custom ordered. So I have to order a certain number of them. Uh, so I can't just throw it up there on Amazon. Uh, Unless I want to go order, you know, a thousand of these and and have them sitting in my, you know, my garage and it's not really a great way to do it. So the Kickstarter is a way to try to get the word out and, you know, gauge interest and, uh, you know, make it available. Uh, The different, the different levels, uh, kind of the the level that's been the most popular is the, uh, the Bacon Master level. Uh, And that's the hundred dollar level where you can, you get the leather hardcover, you get the audiobook. Um. You get the ebook, and uh, you get some digital artwork, and uh, we're hoping to throw in some additional things if we can, you know, unlock some, uh, you know, some of the stretch goals. So that's kind of uh, the main backer level that most people are going for because you kind of get it all—you get the ebook, the audiobook, the, the special leather hardcover. Um, but you can do there's different levels where you can get, you know, just the audiobook, or just the ebook, or just the standard hardcover, you know, or combinations of those things. Um, and there's a couple other high tier levels that are really fun that, uh, we threw in there just to, just to make it a blast, you know, and just, and just explore different things. Um, there's a level called the gods of the Pantreon where you can get everything in the bacon master level, pl- but also, you know, include your favorite food that I can then take and incorporate into the powers of one of the gods of the Pantreon. Uh, and that was a little bit more expensive, but, uh, hopefully someone will pick it up because that would be fun to do. Um. So yeah, uh, we're trying to create a range of of different backing levels for, you know, for different interest levels and, and different budgets for, for people, and trying to have fun with it. Uh, we added a lot of you know add-ons that that people can go for, from you know a set of Bacon Master cookie cutters, you know, to an apron, to a, a full size you know skillet frying pan, cast iron pan with the Bacon Master logo and you know someone's name engraved. Oh, I like it. You know it. that was going to be super cool um to some uh, shovel shaped letter openers to it's just all all kinds of different things we did uh just to have fun with it uh so i hope you know i hope you so liking it
0: what level of backing do they have to give you for you to drive to their house and cook them bacon
1: <laughs> yes that is called the master chef level that one is like 6800 bucks and i will fly <laughs> and drive. You know, however it takes me to get there, my wife and I will come to your house. We will cook epic food with you and spend the afternoon talking about the book or anything else you want to talk about. Um, Outstanding.
0: That Uh, that had to be an option given the subject.
1: Yeah. So it's going to be good. That would be amazing if someone picked that up. Uh, I don't know how much we'd actually make off of that because we'd probably spend all the money and travel and just buying a ton of food, Um, which would be super fun. I mean, what a blast that would be. So, uh, we threw a lot of those things in there just, just to try to have fun with it.
0: So, so does this mean that when you cook bacon, you can call it a tax write-off now?
1: Absolutely. I need to get
0: on this train if that's how it's working.
1: Man, yeah, I, so I messed hard. up. I didn't
0: steal this idea sooner.
1: We've been buying a lot of bacon <laughs> and trying a lot of recipes. Um, and people have started sending me their favorite bacon recipes, which is awesome because there are some very creative, uh, chefs out there that, uh. I really appreciate it because I wouldn't come up with some of these things myself. But uh, one thing I did recently was we took some bacon and we kind of half cooked it and then wrapped it around uh, cheese sticks, like string cheese sticks. And then we baked it Uh, in the oven um, for like 20 minutes just so that the cheese could start melting. And by that time, the bacon's all cooked. You take it out, you get these cheesy bacon sticks that you can can eat. Um, And those are wonderful snacks. They turned out excellent.
0: So let's talk about the book itself. What would the 30 second elevator pitch for Bacon Master of the Apocalypse be?
1: Awesome.
0: I mean, so, I almost feel like the name is enough.
1: So, yeah. A lot of people, they see the name and they're like, uh, I'm sold. <laughs> but uh, I t- I kind of touched on some of that earlier. Uh, the basic pitch is, uh, you know, i uh, just going to get my mind straight again. <laughs> Talking about bacon, get me distracted. So. Uh, bacon Master. The me Apocalypse. too, me too. Yes. This is a humorous fantasy set in a world where uh, magic comes from food. Uh, you get the gods of the Pantreon out there, uh, you know, powering their guilds of magic uh, with different powers, the cheese wizards, the muffin mages, the Bacon Masters. Uh, but the story is about Rasher Dilskin. He's a Bacon Master who can channel the awesomeness of bacon for superhuman enhancements. Uh, he's a super boss warrior, but he faints at the sight of blood. Uh, which is kind of a problem because the empire is being invaded by these hordes of ravening monsters and the heroes who lead the legions to fight off the apocalypse known as the reapers of the apocalypse are sidelined uh, by nefarious contract addendums and uh, the elite the empire needs new legion or new new reapers so they get rasher and he's given a quirky little team that have their own issues and nobody believes they can save breakfast let alone the empire so they got to figure out how to work together uh, whip up some new recipes, get their battle cuisine in array, and uh, prepare to lead the legions out to uh, fight off the hordes of monsters.
0: Okay. So what is it you think that may- – well, first off, is this book going to be part of a series or is it a standalone?
1: It will be part of a series. Uh, I'm wrapping up final edits right now. I've got book two, the first draft written, and it's uh, it's an awesome book. Uh, book three is planned out, so it's going to be like an initial trilogy – That may be an initial four or five books (laughs) still kind of figuring out the ending of that uh, first bit of the series. And then uh, there's additional books I may add on to the end of that as well, just kind of depending on how well it goes. And, you know, people seem to really love the concept. So I think there could be, uh, you know, easily 10 books in the series uh, as we roll through this one.
0: Okay. So what is it you think that makes this book and then the series that follows it, that will follow it, special?
1: Well, um, you know, the uh, the food humor, um, Culinary Wizards, uh, I think it's just something that a lot of people can relate to. You know, people like food. And, uh, you know, food makes us happy. It brings us to uh, – good places a lot of times and uh, a lot of our happy memories and, and kind of powerful memories are associated with food and you know can you, you smell a certain food and boom you know you can be transported so I'm hoping to tap into that and just you know give people a really fun uh, you know fun epic adventure that, uh, that they can just enjoy um, probably while they're binge eating all their favorite desserts um, so if we can hit that it's going to be awesome. And I, I just hope people can read this and just laugh and enjoy it and, and turn around and say, I need to go start cooking something, you know, or bake, you know, 500 cookies and uh, dip it in ice cream and, you know, just have a good time.
0: Absolutely. So it sounds like a little bit of a unique premise. So did you hit on any of the common fantasy tropes when you wrote this? And if so, can you give us some examples?
1: Yeah, you know, it is, it is a pretty unique book, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, having kind of that, that quirky team that, uh, you know, the underdogs trying to to save, you know, save the day is, is a trope that's fairly common. Having the hero who's, you know, trying to win the, win the, the hand of his true love despite, you know, overwhelming opposition and, and long odds is, is a fairly common trope. Um, but I think I've given him a pretty unique twist. Uh, the world of Bacon Master, the, the empire is, 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 that, that kind of runs half the world, excuse me, is, uh, you know, it's, it's a group of multiple different nations. And, you know, there's a lot of politics and internal strife and struggle. And, you know, we may be, uh, you know, looking at the fact that, you know, there may be a time when the apocalypse really needs to happen. You know, there may need to be some change. But uh, we'll have to see, you know, maybe they can they can help change things from the inside without things having to collapse and, you know, burn it all down. But uh, it's kind of like a, a uh, an ex, you know, I think the Roman Empire at its height, you know, if it was based on food <laughs> and food magic, you know, there's some great things. Well, I mean, and things and there's Garum
0: was a thing. What's that? The, the, uh, Romans loved was it garum, I think, or it's like the fish juice, fish guts juice that they put on everything.
1: Oh yeah. I just can't can't pronounce the Latin. I have been doing food research. And if anyone knows like really disgusting foods, like there's the God of disgusting foods. And that's kind of one of the, one of the things they have to deal with. But you know, there's some pretty gross foods out there. You know, you look at like Scandinavia, you know, some of the stuff those people had to eat, um, just to survive, now they're called, yeah. you know, delicacies or you know national traditions. But it's like you know people ate that because they were starving, and they're like, <laughs> what can we do here? Um, and some of the stuff they came up with, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm definitely gonna have to fit that in there somewhere. Um, but great food too, you know, a lot of desserts. You get the confectioners with addictive sugars. So you know, instead of having like you know the heroin addicts and stuff, you get the sugar addicts, you know, looking for their daily fix, you know, and stuff like that. Um, I feel (laughs) attacked. It's just going to be awesome. So um, yeah, this empire is pretty amazing. Uh, There's a lot of good things, but you know, there's, there's issues too. You know, there's, there's countries that have been conquered and, you know, discrimination they're dealing with and, you know, other, other things I think people will relate to um, and then root for our heroes to, uh, to hopefully help resolve some of the bigger issues, you know, other than just you know kill that monster you know those monsters that are invading there's uh there's other monsters in already kind of in the gates that they might have to deal with so that's going to be fun to explore and, and kind of weave into the story and you know between feasts and amazing food magic uh, they're gonna have to deal with some pretty heavy stuff so it should be it should be a good time
0: so you've talked about the tropes this is obviously a fantasy novel did you put this in any other subgenres? Um, or is it? Does it pretty strictly, you think, fantasy?
1: Well, it's definitely fantasy. Um, you know, if people want to look at it as a, a humor novel, um, you know, that would work too. Um, but it's definitely, it's definitely going to fit in the the fantasy category. Just you know, the way it's set up and uh, kind of just the progression of the story arc and stuff is definitely going to be, a you know, similar to you know, a classic epic fantasy but uh, a little more lighthearted than some stuff you might find out there and a lot more humor, hopefully. Um, A lot of food puns. I got one character who's, uh, every time he gets nervous and stuff, which is often, he just tells dad jokes. So we get a lot of dad jokes and food puns and food humor. Um, So there should be some humor for pretty much every, uh, every taste uh, that people may have. For, for what they like in humor there.
0: Okay. So, um were there you've told us about the the main characters um mm-hmm. with the the party, were there any secondary characters that you thought were especially memorable and if so can you tell us about them?
1: Yeah, um absolutely. So there's uh well there's what kind of one of the the uh, the leaders of this horde of monsters um I thought he was going to be appearing in book one, but you're not really going to see him in book two. You'll, you'll hear about him a little bit, but uh, he's a, he's a really interesting character. And I, I've been getting on uh, the, uh, the mid journey uh, AI art generation program to create some, some artwork for some of the, some of the stuff in the world to kind of flesh out some of the world. And I I created a really cool image of, uh, of this guy. He's like a, based on a scottish death fairy um super kind of freaky crazy um monster dude but he's really fascinating but uh he's going to be fun to bring out there our main hero our main hero rasher his girlfriend uh Kitan is her name and she's a very interesting character she's a a high noble woman um young she's from a, a family that with a lot of ambitions for to join kind of the highest tier of uh, families because you get six tiers of nobility um all trying to to get to the top tier the the premi tier so the different tiers are, are kind of named after the uh kind of classic food courses like if you get a, a 10 course meal or something you get the premi and the secondi and the contorni levels and stuff um, so that's the names of the different the different uh high nobility um and then the, the prophet of the uh, goddess of apocalypse Uh, or the goddess of prophecy. He's a a really funny kind of crazy old man who's, uh, who's got uh, an eye into the future there. So we'll see him a few times as well. And he's turning out to be just really interesting.
0: So other than the monsters that are sort of attacking the empire, are there any other bad guys that the heroes have to confront?
1: There are actually in book one. We don't, we don't actually see a ton of the monsters because you know, the main character, you know, all this stuff's happening in book one, they're in the capital. So they hear about the invasion, and they start getting attacked, but they're getting attacked more from, uh, you know, some of the the traitors within the empire, and uh, some of the monsters and and kind of some of their allies who have snuck into the capital to create problems to keep their legions from getting out to assist uh, the outskirts. So in book one, you know, as they, they kind of are being called or or appointed to this Reaper team. They're dealing with a lot of internal strife and there's uh, kind of the main bad guys are more internal problems. There are some monsters they get to deal with and some of that, but uh, they also have to deal with uh, some people who are trying to undermine their work and kind of attack the legions kind of in their home base before they can even get started. So uh, book one's dealing with some of that mystery you know as they're trying to get their feet under them you know things are blowing up and you know you know food's getting stolen and disappearing and you know some of their supplies are 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 uh, being used against them some of their battle cuisine is being used against them and stuff like that so they're they're having to scramble to uh, to deal with all that and figure out who the you know the the traitors and the the internal enemies are just so they got to deal with that just so they can then get the legions to start marching so they can deal with you know the armies of the hordes uh, more in book two. Uh, so book one is going to be uh, really interesting where there's a lot of uh, a lot more mystery and internal strife and in politics and stuff that uh, that they're dealing with, um, in addition to some of the monsters. So it should give a pretty good. it should give a pretty good insight into some of the complexities of this world. Um, you know, the legions are just like, we just want to go fight monsters, you know, and. Um, And that's not always an easy thing to do just because they get in their own way.
0: Okay. So speaking of characters, it sounds like you did a lot of not so nice things to them. All authors do, (laughs) but uh, if they met you in a back alley and they knew who you were, you were Frank Moore and the God of their world, the destroyer of everything they held dear. How do you see that interaction playing out?
1: (laughs) I think some of them would be kind of ticked. Um, you know, you look at Rasher, he's got a lot going for him, but he's got this uh, blood phobia thing where he, uh, he, uh, you know, because he's a pretty boss warrior, Bacon Masters usually uh, have it pretty easy because they have all these powers and stuff, but, you know, that's really crippling, and it's threatening to destroy his career and his chances of, you know, marrying his, his girlfriend, and just it threatens all kinds of stuff, so he might not be super happy with some of the choices we made, but hopefully, you know, once he gets through some of the the character development that I'm hoping will happen. Um, You know, he'll, he won't be so upset. Uh, A couple of the other characters may not be exactly happy, but uh, like our Dwarven coffee wizard, he's just an enthusiastic guy. He's just excited about everything. You know, he gets out of the mines, (laughs) gets to see the world, enjoy some good coffee and uh, create a lot of cool origami. He would be fun to meet, you know, anywhere, back alley or elsewhere. Um, And the Shovel Knight, Um, Doesn't have any magical powers at first and uh, may or may not change that, but uh, he's a pretty amazing guy, but he sees the world a little differently than most of us. He would be really fun to meet in person just because he starts talking. And sometimes you're like, what, where are you going with that? And then he'll come to a conclusion and you're like, wow, um, that's interesting. But then he comes up with stuff that's really deep and uh, it kind of makes you question some of the, assumptions that you make. He'd be be really fun to meet in person. Plus, his shovel is totally epic. So, um, Kind of a shout out to the classic Shovel Knight game, I think.
0: So, what can you tell us about the universe? Is there anything you haven't told us yet that you think would um, illuminate the worlds where the story is taking place?
1: Um... Yeah, I could talk about it all day. <laughs> Depends on how many spoilers you want, I guess. Um, but it's really we try cool to keep it spoiler this.
0: free because we want people to read it.
1: Yeah, so I won't tell you the specifics about you know the challenges that Rasher and his team are dealing with. But you know, the world is really cool because um, you know, book one deal. It, it's mostly set in the, the capital city, uh, which has been the capital of this you know constantly growing empire that has conquered multiple vassal nations. know for 12 generations so you know they've got all this cool magical stuff that's going on and and the city is a wonder you know it's a wonder of the world um even though our main characters are in kind of the military compound called the acropolis but they don't get to see as much of that all the time but uh you know there's there's six layers of of different nobility all kind of with all this internal intrigue and politics and stuff but the 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 most powerful of the nobility, the the powerful families, you know, they, they sit in the food court, which is like their Congress, and they meet with the imperial chef to, you know, create laws and everything. And each of these families are the patrons of one of the guilds of magic. So they're affiliated with the different guilds of magic. Um, So if a family, one of the, the lower tier families manages to unseat uh, to topple a higher family, you know, economically or, or whatever, then uh, they either can take over that guild of magic, or they might topple that guild of magic and, you know, promote their own lesser god um, tied to their guild of magic, uh, which would possibly have ramifications in the Pantheon of gods that uh, could be very disruptive. Uh, they haven't had changes in the Pantheon for a long time. And some people have forgotten that's even possible, but it could happen. And uh, there's, there's a lot of the lesser gods out there that uh, would love to see a, a shakeup in the pantheon seats. So there's kind of intrigue among the gods and there's in, intrigue among the, the high houses and, you know, is kind of stuck in the middle and he's just like, dude, I just want to do my job and marry my girlfriend. And uh, life's not going to be that simple for him.
0: So obviously the magic in this world is, is a known thing uh, and you have the gods. How involved are the gods in the daily life in this world? And do we see any of it from their point of view? Because that's, you know, some of the dividing lines you see in fantasy are the role of the gods and then the role of them with you as the reader. Like, do you see their head from their POV, etc.?
1: Yeah, I don't have the gods, like their POV in book one, but it's a great question and it's possible we could add that in the future. Um, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, taking a direct, like they don't appear to people, you know, normally and stuff like that, but they're granting their powers to people on a daily basis. And, you know, one of the cool things about this world, like you can see in the picture you put up there, rashers get kind of this big, crazy hat on. Uh, and if you look really close, it's like, like bacon in the brim. But uh, in this world, hats are very important, and especially for the nobility. They've got these enormous, crazy hats. That's the style right now. Um, Because for them, it's a religious thing. So think like a Kentucky Derby hat, like on steroids. Some of them are multi-layered and just, it's super fun. But uh, like when they're eating, like they'll take off their hat and they'll put like their first bite of food in their hat and it'll kind of dissolve. And that's like they're offering to their gods, their food offering daily. Um, But, uh, you know, some of the gods don't necessarily get along. And so some of them are, are starting to pull some strings and move people into positions that uh, you know, can benefit you know some of the games that they're playing. And as we get into book uh, book two and three, you know some of the kind of the established magical powers, you know, there's going to be some new things showing up that they don't usually see. some things that are not normally possible because the gods don't usually play nice together and combine magics and stuff. But there are higher levels of magic that they may be able to get to. Uh, if some of the gods are willing to work together to accomplish their goals. So that's one of the things, uh, you know, our characters are going to start trying to figure out and learn about. And, you know, but the the higher they get into that, you know, the the deeper they get drawn into the, you know, the intrigue uh, of the gods and the high houses, which is, is, you know, it's high stakes stuff. And uh, getting killed is probably not the worst thing that could happen to them. So when you wrote all of these food
0: metaphors and the food magics and stuff, did you test it all out yourself or just some of it?
1: If I Did I do what?
0: Test out all the foods you were mentioning yourself?
1: <laughs> I'm trying to test as much as I can. Um, you know, we've been having fun uh, cooking a lot of stuff, and uh, I've been asking people for their favorite recipes and favorite foods, and I'm always happy to to receive you know, recipe links and uh, recipe ideas and food puns from folks uh, trying to incorporate as much as I can. And, uh, but yeah, some of the food is uh, hard to test out like muffin mages, you know, they have like some fire elemental magic so they can like, they have like burning muffins and exploding cakes and uh, illumination pastries and some other things like that. Um, So we love making cookies um, and muffins and stuff at the house and cooking bacon and steaks and ribs. And we've been doing a lot of that and just trying to figure out how to tie it all into the book. And it's just something that uh, I think we're going to enjoy doing for through the whole process.
0: I can already see your IRS agent looking at your tax deduction. Like, they say, <laughs> what? They did what? This isn't a restaurant. Let me look closer.
1: Right. Yeah, that may happen. You know, I haven't been um expensing a ton of the food stuff yet but uh that's going to be happening more and more historically I've done a lot of travel for some of my books especially um the face taker ones like we went to to Egypt and China and um Italy and Constantinople and stuff you know going to these different places that the characters go so I got to expense a lot of travel which has been awesome but then uh, I just got back from Italy again with the family and, you know, my trip, I was doing a lot of research into, you know, Roman cuisine and architecture and history and stuff that I can hopefully add into um, some of the stuff I had planned for this capital city. Um, but yeah, I need to start looking at my food budget and figuring out how to expense more of that because doing cooking research is going gonna, is gonna to be a big part of this year, I think. Yeah. It um also, it also means uh, I'm going to have to invest in more running shoes I think because you know at this rate. Yeah, I was
0: just going to say that you're going <laughs> to oh, I'm just sitting here like I'm I'm uh, doing the trying to get my my health back together and lose the weight that I put on when I got hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just thinking, man, I didn't eat lunch before this or dinner before this interview because I was my walk took longer than tonight. Uh-huh. And I'm like, man, now I'm getting hungry. I got to be careful because this is the kind of thing that's it's like you fall off the wagon. So I, yes. I can't imagine your family. They're like, no, not more sugar. Okay, yeah. if
1: you twist my arm. Yeah, we're, uh, we've are we been trying to, to to cut back a little bit, but then I, I, I start writing and it's like, and it's just like, I'm sure when people read, it's going to be similar. I get up and I'm like, All right, I need a cookie and I need a muffin and I need a, a platter full of bacon. And <laughs> um, in my office, I have I have my workstation. Actually, is my desk has two workstations on it. One of them I keep my laptop in as a seated station. The other one, I have a, uh, an adjustable desk where I can lift it up and I have a treadmill I can fit under the desk. So some days I, uh, I stand there, it's my standing workstation, I turn the treadmill on and I can go about four miles an hour and I just walk while I type and uh, I need to build that back up. Yesterday I did like seven miles, I think, um, but I've done like 20 miles in a day just walking on the treadmill while I type and work. Um, so it's a great way to burn a few calories when I can't leave the desk. How do you, do? like, I
0: don't know, that seems like it would be a difficult way to work on this track. I've seen people do it in the videos, but from a practical sense, it just looks more like it's a, uh,
1: actually once I get in the zone and I'm, and I'm typing and stuff, um, it doesn't really bother me. Cause for my last several books, um, when I'm writing new chapters, like the first draft and stuff, I actually, my preferred way to work is to grab my voice recorder and my, I kind of like a headphones, you know, mic, and I'll go, I'll go hike on trails for four hours and, you know, hike 10 miles um, on some trails near my house and I'll dictate several chapters. Um, so walking and talking or walking and working has become kind of, uh, a common thing for me. And so for me, it hasn't been a big deal. Although I got my wife on the treadmill when I first got it and she was, she did it for like 10 minutes or something. She was playing around the computer and then she just stopped. Like she forgot she was walking and she like fell off the back of the, the, The treadmill, luckily, you know, I managed to catch her and she managed to not fall. But, uh, you know, that could have been bad. And it's like you can't you can't forget that you are walking because the machine will just throw you right across the room. Um, So, yeah, there's some dangers you got to kind of keep aware of. But it's been working for me.
0: So I do the walking and talking for my my walks, too. So I get it. But then I just plug it into the um, to the dragon. Program and it yeah. transcribes it, and luckily for for the readers, uh, it takes out all the heavy breathing, so you know yeah. it doesn't sound as obscene
1: when yes. it translates
0: it to text for me. <laughs>
1: <Absolutely>. <laughs> so,
0: it's for some fun questions about your world before we before we wrap this up, so would you live in this world if you could?
1: That's a great question. I think I would. You know, some worlds, like in some of my favorite stories that I have read, I've thought about that. It's like you know, I wouldn't live in that world because like everything is just bad but in this world i I would because you know especially there in the main in the in the capital it's such a magical place um you know it's all based on food magic food stuff but it's super cool like there's there's streets of moving water that people can ride on you know instead of you know their commute they can just jump on a boat you know on these you know and they'll roads of water will just flow uphill and you know take them to their next place and there's there's just so much cool stuff um out there in the world and the and the food and everything it's just it'd be so fun to live in that world you know as long as you're not like where the ravening hordes of monsters are attacking um it's uh so plot armor depending yes plot armor depending it would be as as (laughs) as long as the capital doesn't end up burning down um, in a giant exploding cake, you know, Inferno, um, it would be a really cool place to live and to visit. Okay. So of all
0: the magic that you invented in this universe of all the food magic, which one would you want for your daily use?
1: Mm, Great question. Um, what a good question. Of course I would, I would probably lean toward, uh, you know, being a bacon master, just because I love bacon. And it's been so fun getting into Who doesn't? Into, rasher's, into rashers life, because he can channel bacon, depending on how much bacon he has accessible and how much he kind of uses at once releases into his system at once because he can eat the bacon and store it um, inside of him like a, you know, fuel ready to go. Um, it kind of it can enhance um pretty much all of his physical and mental attributes like chewy bacon is better for mental stuff crispy bacon is better for physical stuff and then there's higher forms of bacon power um, you know if you're if you have enough bacon on hand uh, that you can use once in a while um, and that would just be really fun uh, being a bacon master is pretty awesome um, but some of the other ones are cool too um like the meat mages, you know, they can take meats from different animals and and produce some really cool enhancements that, you know, end up being permanent, you know, enhancements that people have, but it takes a while to produce those. Uh, Milk mages are healers. So, uh, you know, they can, they have their healing whipped cream uh, and trauma yogurt and stuff. That would be really cool. um, You know, if you want to be a doctor or something, be a milk mage, because they can do some pretty miraculous stuff. Um, But confectioners are cool. You know, with their cookies and stuff, I love cookies. That's uh, like Christmas cookie time. Um, And they can do all kinds of really cool enhancements with cookies, like couriers, you know, have like cookie sugar enhanced speed and things like that. But their sugars can be pretty addictive and and troubling too. So you got to be careful with that. Um, But yeah, I'd probably be a bacon master just because they're awesome and they wrote it that way because bacon master is is kind of the main character so it's got to be cool
0: so did you watch that was it movie elf the every christmas then by the guy with the cookies is that basically what your uh where he goes crazy is that what your uh sugar masters are like basically
1: oh, yeah they uh they can be pretty insidious but with their you know they've got different cookies that can do um, you know, kind of give you a temporary boost to energy or speed or things like that. They can produce hallucinations. They can they can do all kinds of stuff uh, with their sugars. Uh, you know, powdered sugar can, can be uh, pretty addicting. But yeah, you know, I love a good cookie. So at Christmas time, we make lots of cookies. And uh, I try not to eat as many as I want to, but it's hard. Um, so I'd be tempted to be a confectioner just because then I'd have to bake cookies and, you know, cookies and, you know, other sweets every single day, which would be awesome.
0: Yep. That sounds fun. Um, so,
1: so when other, you did your, go ahead. I was gonna say the other thing that, uh, I hadn't brought up, but you know, you get got the different guilds of magic with their different abilities, but then you have the chefs because they can take you know foods that have been prepared by the different guilds of magic and they're the, the keepers of the recipe books, so they can help you know produce these amazing feasts these meals that can then. Um, boost you know one power, you know you might have a bunch of different ingredients in, in a, a recipe, but they can boost one effect out of that, and uh, so when you start starting into the higher the higher recipes uh, higher tiered recipe, you can do some pretty incredible things. Um, and those are going to be fun for people to see in the book.
0: Okay. So you, um, your universe obviously has monsters in it because you mentioned that. So when mm-hmm. you created these monsters, how did you go about doing it? Did you let your nightmares inspire you? Did you like Mother Nature? Did you pull on the myths, legends, and lore from uh, across the globe?
1: Yeah, I mean, a little bit of all of the above. Um, I ended up uh, kind of zeroing in on, like, uh, Scottish myths, like uh, the main bad guy, one of the main bad guys we've seen in the first couple books is based on a Scottish death fairy known as a Bean Nye. Um, just because the name is awesome. And uh, I changed it a little bit to kind of fit the world, but he's a pretty scary, dude. Um, and then, you know, we have kind of a bunch of different kind of humanoid type monsters that are all kind of grouped under the term of of goblins. And you've got different types of rock trolls. And then you have all kinds of these different um fey type creatures that have different types of magic and you know there's there's quite a wide variety of magical monsters that they have kind of have their own country their own part of the their own part of the uh the continent the you know these dark forests that they live in but they you know they have their own internal issues you get kind of like in normal uh fey or fairy tale you get kind of the good and the evil courts of magic of course for them it's the um the bitter court and the savory court um, that don't always get along, but uh, for this invasion they're trying to work together for at least on the surface. Um, but then you've got you know the the politics between the different countries and the different levels of um, of nobility, and then there's at least one other you know external uh, confederation of other nations are trying to fight against the empire. So you've got several different layers of of conflict we're going to need to explore. Um, as we kind of get into the deeper magic and the wider world. So I'm looking forward to getting to that. Okay. So
0: with the uh, speaking of the the wider world, um we obviously met, you know, the interviews winding down right you know, almost an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but was there anything about the big it's been fun. was there anything about this universe that we didn't think to ask that you want to tell us before we wrap this up?
1: Oh, that's a great question. There's so many things that we could talk about. <laughs> it's uh, It's been really fun, you know, building and exploring this world. And, you know, it's one of those things that is still growing. And, you know, every other day it seems I have another aha moment. It's like, oh, we got to do this other thing. Um, but I just had a couple of cool maps made. Um, I got them back this week and uh, plan to be sharing those with, uh, with the newsletter and, and fans and stuff, kind of of what they know of the known world and uh, kind of the main city that, a lot of this action is taking place in. So I'm a map guy. I love doing maps. And uh, so I hope to have several here before we're done. Okay. So
0: this is the part yet again in this interview, dear listener, where I remind you that your reviews matter. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platform. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. And legend has it when this book goes live and you write the hundredth review the Bacon Fairy will show up and deliver Frank some fresh stuff for Wally writes book too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That will be,
0: that'll be a good day. So, <laughs> Will you share with your family or is it all going to be yours?
1: Well, um, we'll see. I got to share with my wife because uh, I got to keep, uh, keep all that happy. But uh, yeah, we only got one of our kids still at home. The other three are all off in college or on their own. So I might be able to keep a lot of it myself. If it's bacon. Nice, nice.
0: That is uh, an absolutely wonderful thing. Is there any plans to take all the recipes readers are giving you and uh, start making a uh, Bacon Master of the Apocalypse cookbook?
1: Uh, There are actually, I've started collecting them. Um, One of the stretch goals that uh, we hope to get to is uh, if we hit that point, I actually want to add some of the recipes in kind of between the chapters. Either that or at the end of the book um, and open up uh, for the uh, creation of the Bacon Master Cookbook, which I am planning for you know later this year. But if the Kickstarter you know accelerates when we get to that point, uh, I'll do it sooner. But yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. We, we started kind of uh, collecting and uh, loosely putting that together already. And it's going to be pretty epic.
0: So if this sounds interesting to you, they're at the halfway point of their $10,000 goal for this book. So uh, absolutely, if this is your thing, get it while it's getting good. Uh, We'll be loading this interview up as soon as we're done on Wednesday. So you have nine days left if this is your thing. Uh, And if you are finding this after this backs, because I'm going to hope it does, uh, a year from now and you want to find it, you can go to his website where he links all of his books. Speaking of websites and your um, Internet presence, where can listeners find you?
1: Yeah, great question. So my website is frankmorin.org. You can see all the books and everything there and reach out to me. I'm also on Facebook um, and Instagram and TikTok or kind of my primary <clears throat> primary location I've got a YouTube channel that I'm starting going to start filling in as well uh, but Facebook the uh, author frank Morin page uh, you can get on the bacon master of the apocalypse uh, group uh, group page uh, where we're talking a lot about this stuff and you can uh, listen to the sample uh the audiobook sample that we just came up with and uh <clears throat> or find me on Instagram at uh, moranwrites and TikTok is uh, frank moran author So yeah, please connect with me. I'd love to hear from you.
0: All right. And you can find us, dear listener, over on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, that is blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups, backslash blasters and blades podcast. We have a Facebook page where you can also also follow us, do that. When we get enough, we'll be able to give it a dedicated URL. But in the meantime, you can type it in the search bar and it will show up. I promise you, dear listener. We have a website, w um, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades, where you can listen to the show and support us for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. Or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author Jr. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly baconized. They will have bacon until their taste buds explode into light. Uh, <laughs> and oh, what a way to go if you're going to die. I, I think that's, that's the Absolutely. chef's kiss uh, ending right there. So, uh, with that said, thank you for coming, Frank, yeah, and uh, thank you, dear listener, yeah, for yeah. and thank you, dear listener, for spending some of your precious time with us for the absent Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Thanks for stopping by, Frank.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, now go click that link, buy his uh, Kickstarter. Do your part, people.